My guest today is Dr. Claire Park. Claire is a consultant in the pre-hospital emergency medicine for London HEMS and anesthesia and critical care medicine at King's College Hospital in London. She's also an Army consultant and retired lieutenant colonel with over 20 years of deployed military experience. Claire is the medical advisor to the specialist firearms teams of the Metropolitan Police Service and has worked closely with all of the emergency services in London on developing the joint response to high threat incidents, in particular following the attacks of 2017. She's the chief investigator of a UK nationally funded research grant looking at evidence for improving patient outcomes in the hot zones of major incidents. I'm excited to have Claire on the show because she has a unique combination of real-world experience in combat theaters and practical experience in research in civilian tactical law enforcement. She's also been at the forefront of the UK's new approach to mass casualty events called 10-Second Triage. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. Claire, thanks so much for being here today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Thanks ever so much for inviting me, John. I'm really excited to be talking to you about it as well. So I think I think context probably matters more in this conversation than it does typically in, in one of my interviews because your experience and the experience of the United Kingdom inform ultimately the 10-second the triage system that you create. So why don't we go back and, and let's let's talk about kind of your background and history a little bit. Where, when, why'd you decide to become a doctor? Uh, okay, so that's quite a long time ago. Um, I actually almost joined the army before I became a doctor, but I decided to become a doctor because I was super interested in how people work in the human body uh, and I figured that life was probably quite important. So trying to sustain life seemed quite an important thing to be doing. Um, so I decided to go to medical school and um, then really wasn't even sure if I'd enjoy it, but absolutely loved looking after patients um, and then realized I could be in the army and be a doctor. So just before I graduated from medical school, I joined the army Um uh, planning to join for six years and 23 years later, um, I was still in uh, until what well, is last year now when I left. Um, so I uh, specialised in, um, ended up specialising in anaesthetics intensive care and pre-hospital emergency care and trauma, which is my kind of main area of work. Um, but started off in the army as a, a GP working with an infantry battalion um, in Iraq was the first place we deployed to, uh, where I spent six months with them, um, and then came back and started specialist training in anaesthetics and critical care medicine, which then took me to the pre-hospital care world, where when I deployed again to Afghanistan, I deployed with the medical emergency response team, which is essentially the sort of helicopter <clears throat> version or, um, 
on the Met, in the uh, Chinooks, and we would go out to treat the soldiers from the battlefield on the way back uh, to Camp Bastion. Um, and then I do the equivalent of that job in the UK, where we call it HEMS or Helicopter Emergency Medical Services. And in London, we have a team that work for a service called London HEMS, where we do exactly the same. We essentially take the uh, emergency department to the roadside, uh, where we do resuscitation procedures and examine and decide what patients need at multiple trauma scenes across uh, London and the surrounding area. So, I mean, you spent the last 23 years dealing with people who are in trauma in the field, not not just not just treating people in emergency rooms, but between your work in the army and your work in the HEMS program, like you're 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 flying in on a helicopter to almost every patient you see. Yeah, um, either on a helicopter or in the car when the weather's too rubbish. Um, but we, yeah, essentially, um, I guess we're in a way I see it as being pretty lucky to see patients at that really early phase of their injury trajectory, something that often people in hospital don't see. And sadly, some, pe- some people were not able to save and those people never get seen by the people in hospital. But we have the opportunity to see what we maybe could do to save people. And we also understand what it's like to try and manage people at the scene. And I think that sort of that element of working within an emergency scenario and within the scene is something that brings me into the work that I've been doing with the police and particularly police officers in tactical environments um, understanding the situation they're working in is something very different to people who work within. Yeah, and I think it's 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 not you know it's not wasted on me that the 23 years you spent in the army were 23 of the most eventful years for trauma medicine for the way we treat uh, our injured soldiers. Um, how many times did you deploy in in the time you were in? So I guess that it was a total of so it was in Iraq for six. Uh, six months. I went to Afghanistan three times um, for three or four months each time. Um, and then I also deployed with our small surgical forward teams that support our soft units um, to North Africa. Um, and during that time, spent a lot of time obviously on training, in training for those different varying roles with the military. So probably particularly Afghanistan was really busy in terms of casualties sadly um uh isaf casualties that we saw um american multi all of the international security forces both uk american dutch and everyone else that was deployed with us as well as the afghan casualties that we we came across so yeah those few years were particularly busy and really glad to say that by the time we left at least it was less busy than when we started and we were seeing less people badly injured but there was certainly a lot of bad 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 injuries during that time yeah, but I think it's it's for for your later life. I think it's fantastic preparation, right? Like between the the hymns work that you've done of seeing people, you know, who are in car crashes and you know, you know, all kinds of traumatic injuries, to the time spent in Iraq and Afghanistan and dealing with gunshot wounds and and you know, frag wounds and and you know, concussion wounds and all those kinds of things, kind of lays the foundation that that then makes this you know. It makes you perfectly qualified to do what you're now doing. Yeah, I think it does. It, I mean, it focuses your mind a lot when you're 
there trying to save people and it you know if you're passionate enough, passionate enough about it you you really really want to understand what it is that we could do to make a difference um and seeing the injury patterns trying to understand what's happening and i think now my other job which is in hospital as well as working for the pre-hospital services i work in hospital both in the emergency department running trauma calls and in the intensive care department looking after people on life support machines essentially helps me understand that whole injury process and what we expect to happen and what's possible to happen for people that we do the right stuff for. Um, and then in the pre-hospital world, we see the people that sometimes we can't save and we look at what we need to learn to do better. Yeah, I think it's, it's you know, we did the US, they talk about the golden hour of, of trauma. And it's, it, it's, it seems just in reading your bio and talking to you and preparing for the interview, it seems that you've spent the last two decades living in that golden hour, um, you know, with with everybody from from soldiers to cops to to, you know, just average UK citizens. Yeah, I think. I mean, arguably, it's not an hour. I think I I, I, I know people heard people say that now. There's the golden hour, but actually, you know, for some people, it's five minutes. For some people, yeah. there's no time at all, and then for some people, there's longer. But there's definitely a I think a shift in what we know is that probably the peak time to death, certainly from bleeding pre-hospitally, is 30, 35 minutes. Um, so you need, in some people, you have a really short time to try and do something. Um, and in other people who are bleeding from injuries to different different parts of their body, you have longer. Um, so I think we, what our aim is really to get there as quickly as possible to make the decision about what they need. And that decision is actually sometimes all we do um, sometimes it's interventions, but sometimes it's just knowing, okay, actually we just want to go with this patient. And in other patients, it's, no, we need to stay and do something to try and get them there relying. Yeah, I recently interviewed Kevin Menes, who was a, one of the doctors that responded to the Las Vegas shootings. And Kevin put it better than anything I've ever heard. He said, when somebody is injured, a traumatic injury, they have X amount of time to live. And that mm -hmm. might be five minutes, it might be two hours, it might be the rest of their life. But if you do not intervene and stop what is killing them in the time that they have, they're going to die. And, you know, it's, it's, I had never thought about the, the role of, an, of, especially the first physician that's treating as, as extending that time. But, but it's really, you know, in, in, in reading your work and listening to interviews with you, that's really kind of the focus of a lot of your work is, is trying to get there as quickly as you can to stop the dying process as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah, and I think you know one of the procedures we started doing in London, which is something called Reboa, it's um, essentially a, an internal tourniquet. So it's a resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. It's a long term for it, but basically you put uh, a tube into the femoral artery and, and inflate the balloon in the aorta to stop bleeding below it. And we brought that in really because we were seeing patients dying on the streets that we couldn't resuscitate to get the hospital alive we wanted to do something different so that process of essentially because you can't compress that that's non-compressible bleeding that's inside the body as opposed to the stuff that you can put a tourniquet on or you can pack then we needed to do something different so as a service in london we even though it's fairly complicated we realized that we needed to do something and we certainly had some patients and the complications of it but we've had some patients who survived to hospital and done really well as a result of having that put in so we're still learning about it. We're still trying to push boundaries with who we can make it work for. And the sicker the patient, the harder it is to get it in. Um, but we're constantly looking at what we can do differently. 
and not accepting that there isn't something we can do. Yeah, I want to talk about kind of some of the areas you're currently researching. I think first, it may it may not be a bad idea to give context uh, to our listeners the difference between the UK and the US as far as policing, ambulance service, because you guys have a different approach than we do. Yeah, I guess from certainly from a policing point of view, um, it's unusual or more unusual for our police officers to carry guns than it is not. And I we had we've had one actually had one American doctor work with us, but he was like, I can't get over it. I can't understand how half your police don't more than half your police don't have guns on the street. So for me, when I say that I work with our armed police unit, that's more many most of our police in London are not armed, and there's a small unit of smallish unit of armed police in London, more in London than anywhere else. But um, that's probably the biggest difference. Which are the um, specialist firearms then, officers, if I remember correctly? Uh, so we've got two levels, if you like, of armed policing in general. I mean, they're split into specialist areas. But the, the main, the, the armed response vehicles, as we call them, ARVs or armed um, firearms officers, standard firearms officers, are, are the normal normal guys, the guys we work with day to day on the streets. They'll be driving around London in cars and they often go to stabbings and shootings that we go to with them. The, the specialist the counter-terrorist specialist firearms officers or CTSFOs are a little bit more like the specialist intervention units. So a bit like GSG-9 or RAID or probably a higher level SWAT team, um, more sort of special forces trained and they have extra skills for hostage rescue um, and the more complicated jobs and they would do more undercover stuff, stuff both crime and counter-terrorist work. Um, and we have... In, uh, I, we have quite a few teams in London and I've worked quite closely with them as their medical advisor. Um, and then I guess some of the other differences we have in the pre-hospital world is that our fire and ambulance services are split. So unlike in the US where often the, the you would one day maybe be doing a fire job and the next day be on an ambulance, um, we have totally separate fire and rescue service to ambulance service and they're, those, they're not interchangeable roles. So the firefighters are firefighters. They're not firefighter yeah. paramedics. Yeah. And and, and um, the and paramedics I, rescue EMS or their own discipline. Yeah. So we have the fire rescue service tends to be the kind of fire and they have a rescue role. So their role in sort of high threat incidents or terrorist attacks would be other than dealing with fire to to be the sort of extrication and rescue people particularly, although they have some first aid training as well. And the EMS or the ambulance service would be providing the medical response. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and the other thing is, it's it's common to have a doctor. Uh, like it, it, it in the U.S., we think in terms of you know you're going to get a paramedic who's going to get you to a hospital to a doctor, but you guys forward deploy your doctors much more than we do. Yeah, I think it's pretty standard across the uk um not lots of doctors teams not as many as they have in france um but in most areas of the uk we will have a doctor paramedic team available to uh deploy to a scene to provide that kind of hems response that emergency department response by the roadside um and it's been increasing so it's you know probably 30 years ago london hems has been um going for i think just over 30 years now 34 years or so um, and certainly when we started, a lot of people said, this is ridiculous. Uh, what do, why, why would doctors going to the scene? And it's kind of become an accepted kind of part of our response now, which is to have that enhanced sort of medical team going to the scene. Bizarrely, it's the one place that's not so accepted is in tactical situations or high threat environments. 
And I think my understanding that the uh, reverse is, is the case in the US where you, the only place physicians really seem to deploy to the scene is with a tactical team in some places. Yeah, it's not, it's not uncommon in the US for a medical director to you know, be embedded with a team. Um, at a minimum, you know, you'll have highly trained tactical emergency medicine specialists, but, uh, but it's not unusual for teams to take a team doctor with them. And yeah, you're right. That is the one place that we for deploy our doctors. Uh, although, you know, I think as we, we go into this, we'll find that probably both sides, uh, could, could stand to move the doctors a little forward in a mass casualty. Talk to me about interoperability. Um, uh, there's a little bit of difference in the way you guys, um, interoperate, police, fire, rescue. Yeah, I think um, it's probably standard for us in the UK. So we have a thing called JESSUP, which is the Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Principles. Um, so for any any scene, and most of our emergency scenes are multi-agency to a certain extent, where we'll have you know, an RTC fire will come and secure the vehicles, while ambulance will sort of deal with the casualties, and then police will secure the scene. So most of our scenes involve at least two, if not three, of the emergency services. And we have a standard way of, of bringing those those services together with um, principles of uh, joint understanding of risk and situational awareness. And the commanders all coming together in a huddle to make those decisions. And in principle, it works really well. And on the smaller scenes, it definitely does. And we'll have repeated command huddles between the the three commanders just to kind of update, particularly on slightly more complicated scenes. Um, it doesn't work if people don't come together in some of the more complicated, bigger major incidents. That's one of the sort of issues we've had. But I think in general, it actually works really well. And we have specific interoperability liaison officers for each of the services that are specifically trained to pass the knowledge of their service onto the, the other emergency services they're working with. So I think it does work quite well to bring our add our teams together and see and augment everybody's working together. Yeah. And I think um, that's kind of a good segue to talk about, you know, stuff that's interesting to you right now, um, because I know that you're, you're doing, you know, research, you're, you're involved in a lot of things. Um, what, what's got your attention right now? What are the things that you are working on and are, and are trying to move forward? So I've spent, probably the last few years at least looking specifically as I've kind of alluded to at um, higher threat responses um, but also major incidents in general whether that's you know, a train crash or a car crash or a fire a big fire in a building um, and from a, a sort of London air ambulance London Hems point of view I lead on that and have particularly looked at you know, incidents across the world and how people have responded to that um, as I kind of alluded to I've been thinking quite a lot about what we could do differently um, to save lives. And what I've noticed at a lot of these scenes is that people talk about process and they talk about numbers of casualties and they maybe even talk about triage categories, but no one really talks about what's wrong with the casualties and how much, therefore how much time we have to save them. And actually that's probably because we don't have a lot of really good evidence on that. So I spent quite a lot of time thinking about what is it that's killing people? How long do they have to survive with all of the various different injuries and everyone responds a bit differently? And then who is there at which phase of their, their response to try and fix that? Um, and trying to bring all of that together to the sort of chain of survival, which we think do quite well for medical cardiac arrest, but we probably do less well for traumatic injuries. 
Um, so I've I've been looking specifically at a research project to look at all of the deaths from terrorist attacks in the UK and supplementing that with stabbings and shootings and similar type of mechanisms to, since 2000 to look at specifically bringing in multi-agency data, so using police data to join with health data and with the um, coroner data to look at the time to death, how long did they survive for, not death on the certificate, but how long it took till they went into cardiac arrest, what their injuries actually were, which we get more detail from in the post-mortem report, and then what anyone who was there was able to do, and also the time of who responded at what point in time with what skill set. So then we know who might have the ability to do something so we can look at all of that data and pull it together and that's we're still doing that now but to look at potential survivability as well and if a patient had an injury that is potentially survivable who would we need to get there in what time frame to fix it and then translate that into exercising as well so that when we actually exercise these things we have people playing casualties who act out in the way that the casualties would present um so that it's more realistic than having mannequins and people who are you know, having a bit of a laugh because it's quite funny to pretend to be a casualty. So trying to make it as realistic as possible, having casualties acting in the right way, presenting in the way the casualties would so people learn that, and then deteriorating if they don't get the right intervention so that by the end of the exercise you have outcomes that say this number of people died, these patients might have survived if something different had happened at this time. So we can get better learning out of the training we do which often is expensive and time consuming and quite often we don't think as much out of it as we could but you start really hitting the the human effects you know kind of the human factors of training by by increasing pressure and doing other things yeah absolutely and you know the the knowledge and the technical skills is one thing but the human factors is almost a whole nother kind of element of training that we spend quite a lot of time training in our sort of small teamwork which is kind of understanding what it is that prevents us maintaining that situational awareness. So simple concepts, I'm sure lots of people who are listening to this understand and train anyway, but the idea of um, sort of bandwidth being the amount of the amount of spare headspace you have to take in new information and process it and make decisions. Um, and if you're task focused on something, how that bandwidth narrows to focus on the thing you're doing and by default then your peripheral vision and your peripheral hearing go and so you miss stuff that's coming in and if you become really really task focused you really don't focus on anything other than what you're doing but you probably don't notice that at the time so then you lose your situational awareness so a lot of the training we do is to train things like motor programs so for instance when you drive most of us, I certainly often drive and probably couldn't tell you what I was doing to drive. If I had to teach someone else to drive, I'd have to really think about it because it's so ingrained in me that I just do it automatically. Even driving a route home that you drive every day, you don't think about it um, a lot of the time. Unless you're driving you know, for a job where you're taking note of everything that's around you. So that idea that you've embedded a major program that then doesn't take up your headspace. So you've got more headspace to notice what's going on around you, to not become task focused and to maintain your situational awareness means that you're much more effective, particularly when it's a high threat situation. But even on a normal job, when we go to a scene, people become quite stressed by everything that's going on. And that also narrows their bandwidth because they're not used to taking it in. So 
being used to turning up to scenes like that and then also focusing on how we respond to each other and noticing it in a teammate. So if my paramedic um, sees that I'm a bit focused on something, they can offload me and take some information or take something off me to give me a little bit more bandwidth back and constantly doing that as a team or keeping one person sort of step back with the eyes out with someone else who's task focused and then switching between those two things allows us to maintain as a team that sort of situational awareness and is often the way we are able to make the skills and the decision making work and push the scene forwards so we spend quite a lot of time focusing on that and also in our training breaking down the skills to focus on those bits as well well and it's it's interesting because we tend to think of the initial response to an active shooter or, or you know uh, that kind of a situation and we tend to train that a great deal you know teams will will work on active shooter protocols and all that uh, and they'll work on tactical medicine but they don't tend to necessarily work on them together where you're dealing with not just a, a patient but a dozen patients and having to choose where you're going to pay attention and I think it is an area that could use a great deal of, of augmentation for training. And, and and we don't think about the overwhelming nature uh, that happens to the medic, to, the, to you know, if you're lucky enough to have a doctor there, the doctor, uh, because that's it's not just an unusual circumstance for the team, it's an unusual circumstance for everybody involved. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, we train for this all the time, but it's not the kind of thing you go to all the time at all. Um and there's a lot to do. You know, if you've got one sick patient, you could do so much for one sick patient when you've got multiple sick patients. Um, having all of those sick patients there, you've got to have some way of starting and actually doing the immediately important stuff first and have a sort of framework to approach that scene. Um, and having that framework to approach the scene, but also keeping one person maybe even back to stop people getting sucked into doing too much for each casualty first before they've got around and done all of the immediate stuff is is a really important part of making that scene work and is certainly a lot of the consideration that we put into a, a new triage tool that we've developed, um, particularly for those kind of tactical scenarios, but for all of our emergency services in the UK. Yeah, which is which is 10-second triage, which, which I, I want to get to. I think before we move to 10-second triage, why don't we give context? Because the UK had a series of events in 2017 that not only kind of identified the issue with with triage response, but also I think gave the political will um to to the public and and you know provided the funding to do the research and and all of that. So why don't we start, I guess it's probably March of 17, right, is the Westminster Bridge incident. Um if my yeah, memory serves it, me correctly, it, car versus pedestrians. Absolutely. Um the um it was March 2017 and it was two, two o'clock in the afternoon um, and it was a car that had driven into pedestrians on Westminster Bridge um, and then drove into uh, the barrier outside the, the Palace of Westminster, which is our Houses of Parliament, and then the attacker ran around um, to the gate of, uh, of the Houses of Parliament and attacked a police officer that was on duty there. Um and sadly, that police officer was killed in the attack, along with um, four other people. Uh, that was the first of the terrorist attacks we had had for quite a while. And actually, what you learn about these kind of incidents is that corporate memory fades quite fast. In the sort of 90s, we had lots of IRA attacks in London. Um, and then in the early 2000s, we had the 7-7 bombings. But we hadn't had anything for quite a long time. So a lot of people actually responding to that attack didn't 
necessarily know that it was a terrorist attack initially, certainly not the car versus pedestrian. That was one of the first vehicle attacks we'd had. Um, and so it, but it then became very rapidly clear what was happening as soon as the police responded to, to the attacker at the Palace of Westminster. Um, and there was, obviously there's, as with all of these events, there was all of the distraction calls and the concern that there were multiple attackers and other things happening. Um, and for that reason, even though it was, we now know in hindsight easily that it was a single attacker, there was a lot of reticence to deploy teams to the scene because of the safety and because it was technically a hot or a warm zone. Um, and then that event was followed by some other events in 2017 with some of the similar themes, but actually what happened well in that event was that the patients got really good care on the bridge because most people didn't know it was a terrorist attack. And when it does become known to be that, actually the response gets delayed because people worry about the safety. Yeah. So you've got, uh, in, in Westminster, you've got 49 people injured, five killed. Um, but yeah, it initially presents as a car crash. Like somebody just lost control yeah. of their car and hits a crowd. And so people are running into the scene and you're getting help and, yeah. and it's not, you know, there isn't this immediate shutdown of, okay, it's a terrorist attack, shut it down, mm. it's a hot zone. Uh, so, yeah. so you have and better think, response. And it was kind of split. So you almost had, it was very obvious what was happening at the Palace of Westminster, that that was an attack. But the people who responded to the south side of the bridge, that that kind of took a little while to filter, certainly from an ambulance point of view. And I think quite quickly it became clear. But I think you still, by the time people had responded and were there already, the police who knew that it was a terrorist attack went, if I stop people responding, now I'm going to stop a response that needs to happen, so I'm going to take a risk and let them carry on because we know that the one attacker we had is now secured and that's happening in a different area, which is different to something like London Bridge where there were multiple attackers and there were thought to be more and then that whole area is kept hot or warm for a long period of time. Yeah, so why don't we skip, because London Bridge is the third in a series of attacks, but let's let's jump True. to London Bridge. So that's the 3rd of June, um, three attackers, vehicle as a weapon. Correct, three attackers, but thought to be four for quite a long time. Uh, vehicle, a van used as a weapon over London Bridge to um, go into multiple patients on the bridge and then crash that van into the corner of a pub. We, we, we believe in the back of the van there were Molotov cocktails that were intended to be thrown into Borough Market as far, to, to use fire as a weapon. And then the attackers got out with um, knives strapped to their hands and ran through the market area, which was 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. So sort of super busy time and a really busy, small alleyway area of London. Um, ran through the market, stabbing, stabbing people, everybody they see or... Basically. Yeah, essentially running around everyone they can get to through the market. Um, and the police response was really pretty quick. It was, I think, eight minutes from the initial call to their armed response vehicle turning up outside the other side of the market and shooting them. Um, but at that point, they had uh, fake IED vests on, but IED vests that they didn't know were fake at the time. So that was then a sort of slight further delay in, in securing that area or allowing people into that area. But from that point, the three attackers were killed pretty much together and there was thought to be a fourth. And so all of those buildings in that area were searched sort of the next eight to 10 hours. It's fascinating how often in these events there's the the count is always off high. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not aware yeah. of in the you know thousands of debriefs I'm not aware of a single case where they thought there was three guys and there turned out to be four. It's always they thought there were three and there were two. Um, Vegas being a perfect example where you have a single attacker and they were getting multiple reports of of you know 
oh, there's three guys, there's four guys. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know the same thing happened in Manchester where there was one attacker who blamed himself. I'd look on to that, but the, the same thing with wounds that look like gunshot wounds, which are actually fragmentation wounds, and people running away with those wounds, and people going, "Oh no, that they're being shot in the car park because they're now in the car park with those wounds, having escaped." Yeah, and and I mean, so so uh, London Bridge is forty-eight injured, three killed. Um, you know, similar similar eight killed. Sorry, eight killed. eight killed. So forty-eight injured, eight killed. So similar. You know, similar effect size mm. as to what you saw in Westminster Bridge with 49 mm. and 5. Uh, and then, you know, between those two, 22nd of May, you have the Manchester Arena bombing, which in the U.S. is, you know, the Ariana Grande concert. Um, it, it, it was interesting because as I started to dig into Manchester, I had no idea the scope of, of that event. Like, it was reported as a bombing, and, and it was not... You know, I mean, it, it got coverage as a bombing at an Ariana Grande concert, but um, 66-pound bomb, TATP bomb, if I remember correctly? Yes, correct. Um, and I think you probably don't work in kilos, but about 30 kilos, uh, that is, I think, 66. Yeah, 66 pounds. pounds um, of TATP and, and fragments, loads and loads of nuts, bolts, metal fragments that he put into it. And that's that is an injury scale that is. I've seen a variety of numbers here. Um, Twenty-two killed, um, but the the Correct. injury counts that I've seen have been as high as a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, on scene, yeah. what what was the you know? Give give us some scale here. So I think the reason the numbers are difficult to know is that quite a lot of people who were injured actually took themselves away from the scene if they went that badly injured that they couldn't get away from the scene i've certainly as part of the research we're doing have interviewed people who've who survived lots of these events and there was one lady who got in a car and drove, drove herself to wales because she was told no one was going to come and look after her in manchester um but yeah the uh i think in the room the city room where the bomb went off there were um maybe 337 people kind of notably badly injured in there um but yeah, I would put up to a thousand people injured, some with minor injuries. Um, uh, but I think we're talking about kind of, I think somewhere between three and six hundred had decent injuries. The number, the numbers will be different from everyone. Um, and then, as we know, twenty-two who died, two of whom, two or three of whom made it to hospital, but died either on the way or just after arriving in hospital. Yeah, but I mean, the, whether it's whether it's 300, 600, or 1,000, it is a scale um, that is, you know, just just ridiculous. It's it's similar to what we saw in the, in the Vegas incident, where it's it's hundreds of patients, uh, and some of them are minor injuries, and some of them are major, major injuries. And, you know, one of the things that, that in, in talking with you and in doing the research, part of the problem is figuring out whether somebody is legitimately, you know, is this, is this an injury they're going to survive? Or is this an injury that we've got to treat them right now or they're not? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's in that very first instance of responding, there's, there's you have to limit what you do, but there's knowing or, uh, over the initial response of life-saving intervention of, of dealing with catastrophic hemorrhage and opening an airway, what what is it that's killing people? And it's it's kind of obvious if someone's got an amputated leg I think it's more obvious and that's why actually some of the 
you know, blast injuries that we saw in um, in Afghanistan were easier to understand. I actually think blunt trauma to a certain extent and blunt trauma where the blast has thrown you against something and where it's fragmentation injury. So you don't have an obvious amputation, but you've got those metal fragments that have gone through vessels in your legs that aren't obviously, you know, your leg's not off, but you're bleeding inside your leg. That's more difficult to to understand how sick the patient is, I think. And so one of the things with bleeding patients, at least one of the things we focus on is trying to understand what a bleeding patient looks like in terms of their physiology. So how do they present? They often pale, they often really shut down, often sweaty, you can't feel a radial pulse. Their breathing rate might be fast because they haven't got enough blood going around. So they're trying to get more oxygen to the blood that they have. But using kind of simple things to try and understand if a patient is bleeding or not as well as the injuries that you see is what you need to do for the people that have internal injuries that you can't obviously see are bleeding out and that goes for whether it's bleeding into limbs and that's important because for the limbs you can you can put a tourniquet above it but if it's if it's what we call non-compressible bleeding so one of the things I try and tell my medics is about um this sort of blood on the floor and four more so there's essentially four other places you can bleed into one is your chest cavity one is the abdomen one is the pelvis and the other is what we call long bones but it's particularly the femurs you can lose kind of two liters of blood into a, a broken femur that's expanding into the space where it's broken so those sort of four places if you like are places that you need to worry about someone bleeding and dying from that bleeding and a femur whether it's because of the femur or if it's because of blood vessels in the leg that are damaged that bleeding can cause you to die. And if you can get a tourniquet above it or splint the limb that's broken, then there's stuff you can do on scene to try and limit that bleeding, which is really important because it might just limit it enough, even if they're bleeding from somewhere else as well, to get them to hospital alive. If they're bleeding into that abdomen or chest, there's not a lot you can do about that be- before you get to hospital. There's a couple of things we might do as an enhanced team. And maybe if it's a couple of patients, we can try and do that. But if it's multiple patients, those are the patients that really need to go. If it's a pelvis, it is important that you might want to splint it because you can, again, limit that bleeding. So I guess it's about understanding where you can't do anything else and you want those patients to just go to hospital and where the stuff that you can splint or stop bleeding to do it because the longer you leave it, the more problems they'll be in when they get to hospital. Well, I think that's that's kind of a good transition for us because so in the in the wake of the Manchester bombing, they put together a, you know, blue ribbon panel to look at the incident, to look at the response, uh, produced a fantastic lengthy report that we'll link to in the show notes. And and I would encourage people to to go in and, and at least read the executive summary of. But um, you at that point are brought in to assist as an expert on on the, the review, right? Yeah, so I was involved in it from a couple of points of view. Um, I was initially brought in as an expert witness to look at one of the patients who died, um, and that uh, meant looking at all of the footage um, and all of the reports in terms of the response and and what it looked like initially and what she looked like and how she presented um, from a clinical point of view um, with the body-worn footage and CCTV footage. Um, And that was extensive discussions about her injuries and what may or may not have happened to her but then the next bit after that was that I was asked to comment on what the chairman of the the inquiry called the care gap 
um, which is essentially based on something we'd published on a couple of years before called the therapeutic vacuum, or at least that's what we called it, um, which is this concept of a, a vacuum or this gap in treatment for people who are injured, but partic- in any scene, but particularly at something like a terrorist attack or an active shooter attack um, where it's not safe initially for people to immediately run in. Um, and there's there's always going to be a delay in healthcare getting to scene anyway, but particularly in these instances where they may be kept outside because of a, a worry about safety, that delay in first responder, what I call first responder interventions or bystander interventions. So the, the C and A or the M and A of March, um, so those are the things that kill people in the first 10 minutes, external catastrophic hemorrhage um, and opening an airway are things that need to be done by someone next to you or someone very quickly there. Um, and that not happening for that first 10 minutes. And then the delay in healthcare getting in there, the delay in getting the patients out to definitive care quickly. And by definitive care, I mean ultimately to a hospital and if they need it, an operation. Um, and then delay actually in the final bits as well. That's not relevant so much at the scene. But actually, when we look at some of these inquiries, they happen four, five, six years later. So we're not getting really quick learning of all of the things that we need to learn from, even though. They go into huge amounts of depth and they're really complicated. Getting that multi-agency, honest learning between different agencies and the, the, the learning from the post-mortem reports, which certainly in the UK are not that easily accessible, are things that we could still do better in the future. So that's a long way of saying that the that this care gap that the chairman focused on, he asked me to look at what I thought could be done differently in terms of narrowing or filling that care gap and where we could make a difference for the future. So if we think of it in terms of, you know, take the analogy we previously had, the the minute you are injured, you know, the bomb goes off, you know, patient X has X amount of time until they're going to die. Let's just say it's 30 minutes. The care Mm -hmm. gap is the amount of time we are wasting out of that 30 minutes because we cannot deliver care immediately. Mm -hmm. Which obviously there's always going to be a care gap, right? Like no matter what, there's, unless you have... You know, the medical team standing by immediately, there's always going to be a care gap. But but obviously, the more of that 30 minutes we spend trying to get paramedics there, trying to get doctors there, trying to get ambulances there, um, or, or in the case of, you know, hot zone, waiting for the for the scene to be secure, um, that that care gap is spending that 30 minutes that that person has. And and if we spend 15 minutes of that, then we're down to 15 minutes to save their life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those initial interventions don't need a, a paramedic to do them. Anyone can do them if they're trained to do them, I think, is the key bit. And I have certainly seen exercises in the UK yeah, a few years ago where there would be CTSFOs and armed response police standing. They've moved the casualties. They've put them all in an area to keep them protected in the hot zone or made a warm zone in the middle of the hot zone and just stood watching them die because the training is not or wasn't to provide immediate interventions for them. And like in the military where every soldier is trained to provide buddy-buddy aid for the person next to them. And if their mate is blown up, the first thing they do once they've returned the firefight, if they're in a firefight or made sure it's safe to approach them, is to chuck them a tourniquet, push them on their front and try and t- tighten that to okay for them. So that kind of idea of the person next to you trying to help you is possible. I know in Afghanistan, because I know on the back of the mer- the people that came on are alive to me, their mate had put the tourniquet on. 
the people that didn't come on alive didn't have their mate putting a tourniquet on. So we know it's possible to do. It's just about putting it into practice in a, in a way that you can do while you maintain your situational awareness of what else is going on. Well, I think I think there, there's been a big move, both in the military and at least in U.S. law enforcement, to push down kind of those basic levels of hemorrhage yeah. control. And, you know, I recently uh, interviewed an agency that'll be an episode later in the season that was, you know, they had a, a team go into a bank robbery and six of their officers were shot immediately. And two or three, three femoral wounds. And those guys were alive because the patrol officers that responded had medical supplies, they had tourniquets, they had gauze, they had bandages, uh, and knew what to do with them. And so, you know, you went from, uh, then there was a single medic for the team, but instead of doing the interventions now, he was describing to patrol officers what to do. And, and you could see how the system works and how you layer the response. But, but that's, you know, in the case of a mass casualty, in the case of very serious injuries, Half the time, the problem is is that initial response and and how complicated um, so many of the algorithms are, and 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 I think that that's kind of one of the things that emerged from your research with Manchester, right? Yeah. So I, I, if we're looking at a framework for people to walk into that room, yeah, and and everyone describes the overwhelming nature of walking into a bomb and having just gone off, and we could see it from the CCTV. Yeah, there's the alarms going off, the noise, the smell, the destruction, the body bits, all of those things that even if you know exactly what to do, you're you're struggling to remind yourself to kick yourself into where you start. So assuming as an operator, you know, it's secured and you're not doing another job of securing the area and you're just going in and you're faced with the casualties, how do you know where to start with each of the casualties? How do you stick to just looking at them and dealing with hemorrhage an airway and moving on to the next one rather than getting stuck on everything else or not even knowing where to start because it's too overwhelming so one of the things that we we'd actually developed before Manchester but it was an opportunity to present it and suggest that this was something that we think would work for all of the emergency services which is um, 10 second triage as a way of having a framework to walk in and have some very simple questions to ask when you get to each casualty that allow you to just think about these things that are going to kill them in the first 10, se- 10 minutes, deal with that and move on to the next one while prioritizing them at the same time with a P1, 2 or 3 tag. So one of the things that struck me when I first started reading 10 Second Triage and, and you know looking at the system and, and listening to interviews about it was that, you know, there was a there was an underlying belief and I guess was demonstrated in Manchester that the existing algorithms were too complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know a lot of current triage tools, and there's something like about twenty at least published a couple of years, or a few years ago when we started working on this. There were twenty primary different scene triage tools. Almost all of them, in fact, all of them require some form of physiology to be measured. And by physiology, I mean feeling for a pulse and counting it feeling for or measuring a respiratory rate, feeling for what we call capillary refill time, so pressing on the skin and seeing how quickly the, the blood flow comes back. Um, those things really, really take up your bandwidth and narrow you for your focus and prevent you being able to have any situational awareness. Um, and I certainly never count respiratory rate or count the pulse rate. I feel if it feels strong or not. But feeling for a pulse in someone who's bleeding is really difficult because it's weak. And if you're, you've got 
tactical gloves on, you're sweating, your pulse is racing, it's dark, you've got a load of, load of other stuff going on. It's really not an easy thing to do, even in a well patient, but particularly not in a sick patient. And what does it actually mean? Because in a lot of the research, when you look at the triage systems that have been developed and what they've been compared against, nobody ever writes down that pulse rate and that respiratory rate of that patient at that point in time when they've just been injured. They get written down when the ambulance is in a position to record the heart rate or the ambulance crew are in a position to record the heart rate and the respiratory rate. Um, and that's much later on down the line. So not only do we not really have good data from that early physiology to tell us that it means anything anyway, we know that it probably doesn't mean anything. If you're bleeding to death, your heart rate can be slow or fast. So it doesn't necessarily tell us anything. And if you've just watched your daughter be killed, your heart rate's probably not going to be slow. Or if you're in loads of pain, your heart rate's not going to be slow and your breathing rate's not going to be slow. So actually in that early phase, in those first few minutes of an attack where we want people to have a really simple way of working out what to do, it's too complicated to measure those things. And then you have to remember what the respiratory rate is and which category they go in, all of which, again, is not necessarily that helpful. So what we wanted to do is take away anything that's not going to be helpful and anything that's going to make it too difficult for someone to put this into practice and replace it with simple questions that essentially ask about the what we call the end organ effect of the physiology. So what happens to you if you're bleeding a lot? If you bled a lot, you're not going to be have enough blood flow going to your brain, so you're not going to be able to talk properly. Over that, you're not going to be able to walk if you've not got enough blood flow going around your body to be able to keep all of your muscles walking. Then the first step is you won't be walking. The next step is you won't be talking. So ask those questions rather than try and find a pulse. Yeah. So why don't we walk through it? What struck me the first time I read it is like, you know, I'm, I'm far from a doctor and I mean, you know, I'm an attorney and a, a tactical gear guy. And I looked at it and thought, I can answer these questions. Like there's, there's zero medical knowledge required. Uh, as you, as you look at the questions, it, it it struck me as very simple and very quick to apply. And like you could, you could do most of it in, in legitimately in 10 seconds. Mm. So why don't we walk through, we'll, we'll put up on the screen and also include in the show notes, a graphic for this, but walk me through the questions I'm going to ask. So the flow chart starts with, are they walking? Um, and I know that there are some, the reason we started with that is just as a simple way to get rid of some people out of the way. If you're walking, walk out, direct them out, because obviously some people who are walking could collapse. But if you're walking, walk out. And then we come to the next question of, is there any severe bleeding? Um, the reason that we didn't put it the other way around is if you focus on the severe bleeding first, you've got more people to try and assess. So go into the walking, if they collapse, then they can be assessed. If someone, one caveat with that is we tell people to use their common sense. So if they're walking and they've clearly got an arm hanging off or they've clearly got a big hole in the front of their chest, then sit them down and treat them as if they're not walking because they won't be for very long. But you can't afford to assess everyone who's walking out, otherwise you get completely swamped if there's really thousands of people. The next question is, so if they're walking, if you want to tag them, they get a green tag, which is a P3. A P3, priority three is basically anyone that's walking. The next question is, are they, do they have any severe bleeding? And that terminology people will notice has changed from catastrophic hemorrhage in some of the, the triage tools to severe bleeding. And the reason for that, we had a lot of discussion about it, but severe bleeding, a lot of people 
perceive, and certainly we've seen in training, that catastrophic hemorrhage has to be spurting up the wall to be catastrophic hemorrhage. Um, and it sometimes is, but a lot of the time it isn't. A lot of the time it just seeps into clothing. Even if it's an arterial bleed, it seeps into clothing, seeps into the floor, particularly if it's dark clothing and a dark floor and it's dark, you won't see it spurting. And what we don't want is for people to miss that. Um, and then later, which we know too, there's been two preventable deaths in Manchester. The findings were that two people died. Certainly one of them died from compressible lower limb hemorrhage and he was young and fit otherwise. And he died at an hour and a quarter, I think, after the after the bomb had gone off because he didn't have tourniquets put on because it wasn't obvious that it was spurting out. Um, so that terminology has been changed to say if there's severe bleeding, then manage the bleeding. So however you know how to do whatever you've got available to you, the little there's a little diamond action box, which is the blue action box that says pressure, packing or tourniquet. So if it's compressible with a tourniquet, put one on. If you can't or you don't have one, pressure. And if you can pack it, even if you don't have specialist kind of hemostatic packing agents to pack it with anything, pack it with a T-shirt, it's about getting pressure on the base of the wound that's bleeding to stop it bleeding. Um, if you've dealt with them, they become a P1 automatically because they've got something that needs to be done, but also because they're obviously sick. So they become a P1 or a red tag. Then you go to the next question, which is, are they talking? And as I've sort of explained, are they talking is a really simple question. You can answer it quite quickly. Are they talking to me or not? If there's a little bit more training time for people, we can nuance that a little bit more and say, um, are they talking normally? Because actually that will pick up. If you're not quite got enough blood going to your brain or you're, you've got a head injury and you're a bit agitated, you won't be talking normally. And those, again, are people that we would want to pick up to get out early. So in that way, for people with a bit more training time, you can nuance it to pick up some of the other sicker patients. But actually, if you have no training at all, the simple question of are they talking or not will pick up someone. They're not talking, something's wrong, and then they become a P1. The other question in that little bit of the algorithm is do they have any penetrating injury? And this is the bit where I think the kind of Stop the Bleed campaign has kind of missed a few of the patients and I, I think I listened to your interview with Kevin and I know he spoke a lot about the kind of the bleeding that needs to get to a surgeon and that, those type of injuries from Las Vegas where you've got penetrating trauma. Um, but the the bit that has been shown from quite a few of the recent events from a lot of the Paris attack patients and also from Las Vegas and from a, quite a few other places and from London Bridge where we've had patients who've had stab wounds or gunshot wounds in that area between the neck and navel essentially where it's either gone through a vessel there or could have gone into blood vessels inside or you can't compress it, those patients have a risk of non-compressible central hemorrhage and they need to be on ideally on an operating table with a surgeon rather than by the side of the road. We can try and do something for them as a sort of pre-hospital doctor team, but preferably they'll do better in a hospital. So we want to pick up those patients as being a priority one and get them out over the people that have don't have that non-compressible hemorrhage essentially. So the question at that point is, do they have penetrating injury anywhere in that box? And the, the diagram shows you the area that you're looking at. And if they do, they become a P1 rather than a P2. Then we move on to the final question, which is, are they breathing? Um, but you have to be able to open the airway to make sure they're breathing. So there's a little reminder, open the airway if you're able to. Um, and that that's because it's for anyone, whether you know how to do a jaw thrust, which is ultimately the best way of opening an airway, or whether all you know how to do is put someone in a recovery position to maintain their airway. Whatever you do, open the airway. If they're breathing, 
then they get a P1 tag. And if, if they're not breathing, they get a not breathing tag. And that's quite a big change from other triage tags where triage systems where at that point people get a dead tag. That was important for a couple of reasons. One, because we want it to be applicable to every responder. And certainly in the UK, we don't want to put the pressure on and it's not appropriate for police officers and firefighters to be pronouncing someone dead. Clearly, if they're cut in two and their bodies apart from their head, then that's different. But in most of these patients, it they may be resuscitatable and we're not asking those people to make that decision. And secondly, certainly for us and our inquiries and inquests and for our patients, it's some people resuscitation is appropriate because maybe they've only just gone into cardiac arrest and maybe you don't have that many patients and if the mechanism is something like a crush injury like we had at our Hillsborough incident what they need is CPR now if you've got huge numbers of patients you can't afford to do CPR so it only says do CPR if resources allow and that would be dependent on the situation on the threat on the number of casualties but all we're saying is don't just automatically put a dead tag on at that point in 10 seconds without properly assessing whether they're resuscitatable or not and then someone will come back and reassess them. And if you haven't got the resources to do CPR, they just go on their front in the recovery position as well, the same as the P1s do. But the P1s get prioritised to go out because they're more likely to survive if they're breathing than the people that aren't. Yeah, it's 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 really, I mean, it it, it sounds like a lot when you look at it in, in context, but let's just walk back through it again. So are they walking? Mm-hmm. If yes, walk out. You're a P3. If not, then P1. Essentially, P1, you could do that. If they're not walking, they're P... If they're walking, they're P3. If they're not, they're You're moving down the algorithm. Are they bleeding? If they're bleeding, they're a P1. If not, are they talking? If they are talking and they don't have penetrating injury, they're a P2. Doesn't really matter if they don't get a P2 tag, but... That's just to differentiate the people that need to go with a slightly more priority than the people that are talking and don't have penetrating injury and don't have bleeding. So are they walking? Are they talking? Do they have any severe bleeding? And are they breathing? Those are the four questions. And you can, you know, someone's walking past you, if they're sat there talking to you, that's all you need to know and you can't see any any bleeding anywhere. Then you've done it and you can move on. And when we say looking for penetrating injury, it's literally just picking the top up and having a quick look. We're not saying strip them off naked and leave them. Um, so some patients you can literally do in two seconds. Some patients will take a bit longer. And I think the other important bit about it, so that there's, there's two reasons why the tagging is useful. One is to start that casualty flow. So put a tag on so you know the P1s and they want to go out first. So if they're, if they're not breathing, they get left to a bit later because they're less likely to survive. And if they're a P2, they get to, left to a bit later. So when you've got limited people to evacuate them, take P1s out first and that optimizes your casualties to start moving. You've also started this whole process of who's going to go out first. You're not waiting for health to get in there to do that. You've started it. Um, and then it stops people going over the same work because what I would see before we had tags was that People wouldn't use, but in the UK, police and fire weren't taught to triage before this. So we had a thing where previously it was said that only ambulance would triage. So we had to wait till ambulance got there for this to happen, which was adding to that delay. So where anyone that gets there can now start triaging, that started and people can start to be moved out. Um, 
but you would see people going over the same work because they couldn't see who'd been treated because there was no marker to say they'd been treated. But when they get a tag on, people see, all right, they've got a tag, I'll just go past them and start working on the next person that I can see who hasn't got a tag until everyone's been tagged. And then you can start moving them out. And in that process, what you're also doing is is, is managing those life-saving or providing those life-saving interventions. So while you're tagging, almost more important than the tagging is providing that hemorrhage control and opening the airway. Because even if you didn't have tags, if you had the flow chart and you went around anyone, everyone, and all you did was go, are you bleeding? I came and stop it. Is your airway open? No, I'm going to open it, put you in a recovery position. I'm going to move on. Because the problem is when people have some medical training, the temptation is to get them and start doing everything they know. They start taking the clothes off, putting chest seals on. Chest seals never saved anyone's life in the first few minutes. They start trying to, you know, prettily bandage wounds. None of that matters because that's not going to save anyone's life in the first few minutes. You want to get to the people that might be around the corner bleeding to death. Then you can come back and do all the rest of it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it, it when you hear you think about it, you think about it in a series of, of like layers, right? Like there's that kind of initial... And I mean, triage by definition is filtration, right? That's what you're doing is filtering people. Um, And so like right away, let's get rid of anybody that is going to be a P3 because that's just, that's just noise, you know, to, to, to the, to the initial life-saving process, trying to get to the P1 patients who you can help. The, the P3 patients have a long, you know, their, their clock is longer, right? Their, their countdown timer is much longer. So really what we're trying to do is initially look for people that have, you know, a 10 minute countdown timer on them um, or less and, and get them as quickly as possible to treatment. So it's it's kind of like the first step is get rid of the P3s and then from there try to get down to the, P, the treatable P1s is, is kind yeah. of the way that it yeah. strikes me. Absolutely. And what I would expect any medical people to do, so that's for anyone in that initial wave. So we would have whoever turns out, five police and ambulance doing that. We're also now pushing to have our kind of, if you like, physicians or enhanced paramedics getting as far forward as possible to then work out between those P1s. So you've got a load of P1s, which ones are basically what we call P1 pluses or the P1ist P1s, which ones are going to die now as opposed to the P1ist P1s. That's the quote of the day, the P1ist P1s. (laughs) So we want to know which ones need something either to get them away from hospital alive or they just need to go. So then we try to that whole casualty flow and um, keeping casualties moving. So we don't want anyone delaying on scene, but we want the, the right ones going first, if you have the option. If you've got loads of people to carry them out, just take them all out. Don't let anyone get stuck in there. What, what we've seen in the past, and this is one of my slight soapbox things about major incidents, is that this concept of a casualty clearing station that we have, certainly in the UK, where people, I think, see it a bit like a field hospital. And people just get stuck there and everyone has a clipboard. People start writing down observations. Meanwhile, there's ambulances on the other side of it waiting to take people to hospital. But there's a process they have to go through. So they sit here. And the whole point is not to do that, but to just keep people moving to what they need. That's fine if they're a P3 and they're fine and they've got some minor cuts, they can sit in the casualty clearing station. They don't need to get to hospital. But the P1s need to go. Yeah, and I think that one of the one of the things that I walked away from my interview with Kevin Menace about was that a lot of the reason that people survived in Vegas was because they didn't wait for medical to come in. They didn't wait to clear the hot zone. They literally were flagging down cars and filling them with bodies yeah. uh, and just telling them to take them to the nearest hospital. There were a lot of people that ended up getting to hospital because, you know, a, a particular police officer who who had traffic 
just started putting people in cars and said, like, go take them to the hospital, take them to the hospital. So you had patients coming in in taxis and limos and police cars and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And it, it, it strikes me here as the same thing. Like we, we, you know, get the P1s to the hospital as quickly as possible, um, trying to filter out the people who have the shortest timer uh, certainly is challenging. And the more complicated the algorithm, the less likely it is to be applied. And, yeah. and the longer we have to wait for expertise to get there, you know, to, to go back to that concept of a care gap, anytime we're waiting for expertise, we're in that care gap and we're spending time on, on everybody's clock. Absolutely. I mean, you, you're, we're starting from a much later point if you wait for health response to arrive. If, if everyone who's there already is just sitting, waiting for that to happen, all that stuff, and there isn't time. You know, anyone that needs certainly the, the external hemorrhage stopping and the airway opening, that's got to be done in 10 minutes, otherwise it's too late anyway. So that has to be done straight away. And then you want to start moving people out. And there may be some people who what they need is for you to take over their breathing because they've got a really bad chest injury. They're not bleeding as much, but something's fallen on their chest and they just need you to take over their breathing. We can do that in the casualty clearing point. We can do that at the scene with enhanced care. What we want to do is pick up the ones that are bleeding that we can't fix and need to go. So that becomes the kind of more complicated bit that we do further on. But we don't want to wait to get in there to work out who that is. If those people are already being brought out to us, then they're already on their way. And what we've certainly seen with our police starting to do this is they started to nest patients. So they would go in, deal with the threat, secure it, mm -hmm. then start to, or the next people responding would come in behind them while the armed police are dealing with the threat and they would come in and start to do this. And they would do the 10 second triage, walk through everyone, put the tags on, see someone's tags, go to the next one, go to the next one, once everyone has tags on that aren't walking, then they start to nest them. So they start to move them to an area where they're closer to the door or you're, you're optimizing your resources, even if it's not safe to take them out, because rather than protecting people in every corner of a building, if you can drag them all to one corner, you need less people to stand around and protect them. You've got all of your resources and your kit together, and then you can move them out and you can see which are the P1s, take the P1s in one area and take them out first and then the P2s, and then you're not breathing. Someone can come in and assess them later. So you're optimizing your resources and your casualty flow by making your life easier and splitting them into sort of triaged areas, but also getting everyone together. So this is this has now been adopted as a national standard, right, by the UK? Yeah. So this is now um, it's being trained this year. So by April this year, we started training in April last year across all of ambulance, police, and fire. So by April this year, we've given everyone a year to train it. We expect to see all of the emergency services using 10-second triage. Um, and it's been written into our joint operating procedures for um, marauding terrorist attacks. So whereas before those operating procedures said only ambulance would triage, they now say any emergency service can triage um, as long as they're using their NHS England recommended tool, which is 10-second triage. Um, and the benefits of having everyone doing the same thing is what we saw when we did the testing for it, which is not only more people are doing it and so it starts happening quicker, but people work together much better and you suddenly get a much better sort of shared mental model of what's happening because all of the services, when they say a P1, they know what they mean rather than people using different terms to describe a sick patient. And that terminology starts to be passed out sooner. So 
if health ambulance are delayed, the message comes to them, oh, we've got 20 P1s. That means much more than we've got 20 casualties because if the 20 casualties are P3s, you've got a bit more time and you maybe need less resource. So you immediately have some better communication in terms of understanding the number of casualties and how sick they are. Everyone's working together. People understand what the priority is. And we get that casualty flow happening much sooner because they're already tagged. They've already had the life-saving intervention. So by the time you get the next step happening, either people are moving them out or at least they're on a process that starts to move them out. Yeah, I mean, what you've done by teaching it at a national level is you've created common nomenclature. So if I say P1, you know exactly what I mean by P1. Whereas if I say, oh, this guy's really bad, like that, that, that doesn't mean anything. Really bad to me yeah. might mean, you know, I spent 20 years as a medic in Afghanistan and this guy's going to be dead in 30 seconds. Or or I've never seen somebody injured and he's got a toe that's been cut off. Kind of big. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and like I'm by, by defining a, a common triage tool and then giving nomenclature now Everybody speaks the same language, and a P1 is a P1, and we know exactly what to do with it. And it's still, the other triage tools use the same nomenclature, P1, P2, P3, but I think they're too complicated for people to actually use. And as you sort of suggested earlier on, the ones that need all of the other stuff that where it's not as straightforward, people know about it, but they just don't do it. Whereas with this one, where we've tested it, we've given the flow chart to people who've not had any training and just said, here's some scenarios. What do you think, you know, what category are they? And they just go, yeah, this, and they pretty much get 90% correct. Um, so the point is we want something that people are going to use and practically is going to help them maintain their bandwidth and actually know what to do rather than walk in and be like, oh shit, where do I stop? And we've certainly had it used on smaller scenes. Some of the people that did our initial training have taken the card away um, when before we brought it in, but they've used it on scenes. And I know a few of the police in London have used it where they've got to a multi-patient RTC or a multi-patient stabbing with quite sick, you know, four or five sick patients, one dead and some okay. And they've just gone, okay, let's get this card out. And they, it's just allowed them to spend that first few minutes when they're there on their own, one of two of them, knowing how to approach it, knowing what to do, not to get caught up in what should I do, but just do those simple steps, even without the tags. I know that I'm looking for, are they walking? Have they got any severe bleeding? Are they talking? Are they breathing? Move on to the next one. And then by the time they've done that, other people have arrived to come and help them. And they've already gone, right, well, that's the sickest one because so those are the P1s over there. So you go to those and have a look. So the policeman, fireman, everybody's literally carrying a card with 10 second three on it yeah. in their wallet or in their pocket or... Yeah, so we've designed uh, the flow chart is on is accessible to anybody. So it's on the NHS England website, but all of our services are being issued with little laminated cards, um, and they'll have that on them. And then they get a set of tags for their medic bag, um, and some of them will get individual issue. And we've got you know, lots of different police forces and fire services across the UK. So everyone will do something slightly different, but essentially they'll have the tags available and they'll have the flow charts available. So that. You know, yes, you can remember it, but we don't want people to have to worry about remembering. The idea is that it's really, there's not too much on it when we designed it. So it should be quite easy to get it out and just look at it. And it should be clear enough that you can quickly follow it without having to think too much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll link to the NHS website and, you know, the charts and, and everything in the show notes so that people can go and find it. Um, yeah, and there's some training on there as well, actually. If people, like, anyone could take that stuff. We've written some some PowerPoint and some training points. So 
if anybody wanted to look at that, it's all kind of openly available on that website too. That's fantastic. So moving past TST, like Claire, you, you've been involved in response to a lot of events. You've looked at a lot of events. You've done a lot of research. I would love to get your lessons learned or your kind of, you know, soapbox thoughts on on mass casualty events and the way we're responding. Like, wh- what are we getting wrong? So that's that's uh, that's a really interesting question. I think um, there's there's lots. What's interesting, I think, is that when you look at a lot of the reports and learning, there are repeated things that seem to be commented on. Um, and I, I guess it's because they're complicated things to address. One of the first things I would say is that in general, a lot of people try and make the plan work. So for major incidents, mass casualties, um, ambulance services have, um, they have SOPs. And one of the faults I think of some people is that they try to make the SOP work, whatever the situation. I think that's probably less the case for police and policing and operators. Um, And I think people are more used to making it work. But certainly one of the things that we sometimes see is people not thinking outside the box and just going, well, we just want to make this plan work, whatever, and not understanding that every situation is different. You can't write a plan for every situation, so you've just got to try and make something work. But if we look at specifics, things that often are commented on, Mm. the comms don't work is something that multiple people say. That's every debrief um, ever that I've ever attended. (laughs) I've been to a thousand plus debriefs and every single one of them has started with the comms didn't work. Yeah. And to a certain extent, what do you do about it? I hear people say we're going to get different comms, different radios, whatever. Basically, I would say to people, assume they're not going to work and then have a plan for what's going to happen when they don't work. So work on face-to-face comms, work on people running with messages if you really want to make sure you're passing messages reliably or work on pieces of paper, but have a plan because they probably won't work when everybody on the same radio net turns up to the same place. Um, and they're all trying to work and they're all overloaded anyway. So that's one point that I would say that we should plan to overcome as opposed to be surprised when it doesn't work. Um, the second one is kind of linked to our, um, the sort of concept of the joint emergency services principles of getting joint command or unified commands, as I think it's it's sometimes called in, in the US, um, getting everyone together to, to that command huddle which is great in principle and easy on a fairly small scene, but actually much more complicated, certainly when you have different uh, control rooms, different services all responding on different radio nets, actually getting the point where people come together to get that shared mental model and shared understanding of what's happening and understanding what what each other are doing. So the sort of spending time trying to understand not just your aim and what you want to make happen, but having the respect and the understanding and trust of other services there so that you understand what they they are trying to do and you all work together to achieve that is really important. And I kind of say that because that links me into the higher threat stuff where one of the things that I think works really well and one of the things that works well in the military and works well in services where they have embedded medical response within their tactical response is everyone being on the same radio net if it works and everybody um, having understood what the plan is and, and understanding both sides of it. So for instance, at the Battle Clan, where the raid went in with their two doctors who went in with their tactical response, they trained this so many times that they got there and six minutes later, they all went in together. And 
the two doctors went in and triaged everybody in the orchestra pit while the terrorists were still being held hostage in the corners of the, the, the battle clan. Their operators knew what they needed to do, two of them provided them cover while they triaged everyone out, while they came up with a plan for what they were going to do for the terrorists. They could only do that because they trained it over and over again because they were integrated within that response and they all understood what was happening. Um, that wouldn't work for anyone that wasn't fully embedded in the response. And the same thing happened for us in the military. If I deployed, I, I got the security information from my infantry team in, in Iraq. I knew what was safe, what wasn't safe. They were there to support, to protect me. And that speeded up all of that stuff happening. So it's a long way of saying, I think, that having... The best option is to have people integrated, but most of the time that's not possible. So if you've got multiple agencies and multiple people, really get to know the people in your area, really get to know the people you work with, really get to trust them so that when you get to the scene, you know who it is, you know how they're going to work and what they want, even if there's a different service in a different agency, to optimise that working together because that's the way that you're going to achieve what you really need to achieve for the best outcome for the people involved. Um, lack of stretches is something that often comes out in um, debriefs and certainly the Bata clan and Manchester base had everybody carried out on barriers and I don't know if you've seen the pictures but both of those were quite big events where every single casualty was carried out on some sort of kind of crowd barrier or advertising hoarding and that takes like 10 people to carry people out and it, some stretches take up lots of space but small carry sheets don't take up much space so it's a bit of a soapboxing in mind but I say to people just have a big bag of carry sheets so that two people can carry people out on a carry sheet if you're going to keep casualty flow going have some way of getting carry sheets out rather than trying to take 10 people to carry a barrier because it's not going to work um, that's three so comms come on together stretches and then probably the other key thing is I think people not really understanding this fog of war idea and decision inertia. So it's easy to criticise in hindsight when all of the information is available and it wasn't at the time. But a concept that I try and get across to a lot of our teams is the idea of not needing all the information to, to make a decision. So 40% of the information is probably too little, but 70% of the information if you're getting past that, you've probably got too much and you need to make the decision because there is always risk involved in the jobs that we do. And every second you delay, someone might die. So making a decision about doing something, going in, don't go in and get yourself killed, obviously, if, if it's really unsafe, but not, not delaying too long to be really sure it's safe because that's what we've seen in quite a few of our events. And that often comes back as a debrief point afterwards, certainly from a health point of view. I like the term decision um, inertia. I think that's uh, you know if you look at the Uvalde tragedy, um, that is a that is a perfect example of decision inertia. Mm. Um, nobody wants to make a decision. No one has taken command. And it's interesting. I heard a a trauma doctor talking about. Is it actually is an ER doc was talking about the difficulty in making decisions. And I didn't remember, it was, it was a post Uvalde debrief that I watched. And one of the things he said is, you know, I can I can tell you when, when somebody calls code blue in the hospital, I can tell you how old the patient is by how many people are in the room. And he said, you know, if I walk in the room and there's one or two people, I know it's an old person and they're trying but, to save them. They're yeah. doing the best they can. So if I walk in the room and there's 30 people, I know it's a kid. And he said the difference between the one or two people and the 30 people is the 30 people are frequently not doing anything okay. because they're afraid to make a mistake. 
and there's there begins to be be so much weight to decisions that it mm-hmm. becomes easy to not make decisions and it, it's exactly what you're saying it's just decision inertia um and, and, and it is trying to break that decision inertia and, mm-hmm. and get decisions made quickly there's all the you know the worry the things that you've had put in your head in training like the is this is there a secondary device is this a CBRN incident is this this is this this and you have to have all that awareness of the possible threats, but you've also got to go, in reality, how many attackers are still unseen when people turn up to these events if you're worried about another attacker? In reality, how often is this likely to happen? Where's the, you know, where's the zebra and where's the horse or the dog or whatever the common animal is as opposed to the one from Africa that doesn't come into the UK? So what um, you know, what is common, what's not common, what's likely, what's not likely, what information do we have? And just accept that you're going to have to make a decision with them as much information as you'd like. Well, and, and realistically, decision. the time you're taking, you know, going back to the care gap, right? There's also a decision gap. The time that you're taking to make a decision, everyone's clock is running. Exactly. And that's my, I think the final thing is I would say for the care gap, you know, that avoid that delay, try to get someone doing something, have, have kits available, like, equipment for bystanders who are often going to be the people that can do that initial response you know this is often trained off-duty people in these public scenarios where things happen who could do something so just they you know, try to ensure that that stuff is available or pe- and people know where it is and that something like 10 second triage or the life-saving interventions is trained to people so that they know to, to start doing stuff because often it's the not not knowing most people want to help it was really clear to me from watching people in the Manchester footage. Everybody in that room desperately wanted to help, but they just didn't know where to start. So they just did what they knew how to do, which was talk to people, try and offer them water or do CPR if that's what they knew how to do. But they didn't know about stopping bleeding. They didn't know about opening airways. Yeah, and what we learned with the San Bernardino incident was literally rolling people on their sides saved people's lives. Like it is, it is in that really, first 10 really or 15 minutes, important. really simple stuff. Can, can make a exactly. huge difference. So this is one last topic I'd like to pick up with you, Claire. You, you, or, you know, have spent a lot of time embedded with with tactical units, with soft units. So you're, you know, you're currently affiliated with the Counterterrorism Specialist Firearms Officers, which is the, the tier one response for the Met, uh, Metropolitan Police in, in London. If you're the czar of the universe and you're training tactical teams that, and working with them, what what do you want your teams to know? What what are those critical points that, you know, if you're if you're a guy listening to this that's on a team, uh, what do they need to take home from this conversation? Okay, so I'll try and keep it. I've got ten points, but I'll keep them brief, clear points. Um, kits, keep it simple. Ideally, the same kit in the same position. Like if you're carrying torn in case, put it on the same position on each other. So in the dark. You know where to get it off your mate. And that motor program idea of just being able to get it without taking up headspace. So have the same kit, keep it simple. Don't go for all the Gucci complicated kit because it's only going to make your life more complicated. Secondly, do the basics well. So even though it seems really simple, stopping bleeding and opening an airway save people's lives and drill the motor programs of doing those things. Don't over... They underrate them because they're really important. But remember those things. Do the basics well well, and be able to do it in the dark. And maintain your focus to do other things. So if you drilled them enough, you know how to do that. 
the third thing would be a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, understanding what kills people. So, and the stuff that you can do about it. So understanding what kills people in the first 10 minutes is the external bleeding and opening an, air, or an, an airway that's obstructed. If you can fix those things, you can save their life. And then pick up the people that have non-compressible hemorrhage, the people that might be bleeding into their chest, abdomen or pelvis or long bones and get them out with a priority and understand that there isn't something apart from splinting limbs that you can do unseen for those patients. So if particularly if it's penetrating trauma, the ambulance service is not going to do anything different. You just need to get them to somewhere, either to an ambulance that can take them or to hospital. Um, the next bit was, again, be making your life simple. So talking about the 10-second triage stuff, nest your casualties if you can so that you can order them keep them in one area don't have them split over everywhere so that you're spreading your team keep them in one area and then put them into areas of p1s twos and threes so that you make your life more simple by separating them and knowing which ones are which so don't make it complicated by having them higgledy piggledy all over the place um so nest them keep them in areas and then your evacuation will be easier and actually, if you can move that nest to walk closer towards the exit or the hospital, you're starting that casualty evacuation process. So thinking about where you're going to put them, don't take them back upstairs. I'm sure people would, but it's just simple process of thinking the closer they are to getting into a vehicle, to getting to hospital, the better. And if you are going to put them in a vehicle and use your vehicle as a Kazakh vehicle, think about preparing it. So I know that a lot of my teams would have said, oh yeah, we'll put them in the vehicle and take them, but they haven't actually thought who's got the keys the keys in the vehicle is the back of the vehicle down is it filled with kit so if you're going to do an operation and plan to use that vehicle think about preparing it and having a proper plan next one would be about having a medic team leader along the idea of them maintaining bandwidth if you've got enough people so you'll have a, a tactical team leader but if you have someone who's a medic maybe don't have them doing the stuff but have them as the person standing back everyone will have the basic medic skills so have them standing back, keeping everyone else in check and directing what needs to happen because that allows them to keep the bandwidth. It's what I would do if I go to a scene with the guys. I'll try to do nothing. I'll just go around everyone, make a quick decision and direct them what I want them to do rather than getting in stuck in doing stuff myself because then I lose my observation and that's where you see the person that hasn't been treated or the person that's deteriorating. So having someone to take that kind of overview medic team leader role is really useful particularly when it comes to triaging multiple casualties and keeping people in check for just doing the basics and carrying on so almost like a medical incident commander yeah essentially just someone who's kind of got the overview so the multiple casualty event you know you're more likely to see someone in a vehicle that someone hasn't searched or stuck behind a door if you're standing back just keeping an overview over everything and there's a temptation, and we've seen it in the, the testing and training as a tool. People want to get stuck in and help people more, particularly got relatives and stuff there. It's about going, no, don't start doing that. Just airway breathing, um, airway cat hemorrhage, move on until we've got around everyone. So that kind of sense check, keeping everyone pulled back. Um, the, seventh, the seventh one would be just most of the time, I think, they can do everything and they should start to move people out. The time where they might want medical help forward is where they're stuck with multiple P1s and the ability to only evacuate one at a time. 
So the situation that I would see is like a maritime situation. So for us, if we've got a, a, a vessel off the coast or on the Thames and you can only evacuate a few at a time by boat or air, then somehow you've got to choose who goes and what order. And that's where really 10 second triage doesn't give you enough. There's not enough knowledge there. You need someone with more medical training to do that, to pick up the one that's a P1 is that really needs to go. So that's where you might want to think about taking your medical care with you forward or bringing them forward if there's a siege and you've got a whole load of people stuck, a bit like the guys did in the Bataclan to decide who went out next. Otherwise, DTST and just start moving them out rather than trying wasting time trying to get people in because they're not going to do anything different in that immediate sort of scene. And the final few points are probably stuff that I think tactical operators are certainly high-level tactical operators are really good at doing anyway, but maybe just don't acknowledge that they do. Um, debriefing really well, as you will be very well aware, um, but debriefing to understand why you did something. So experts tend to do something without knowing why they did it. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, that talks about the unconscious, unconscious decisions we make because we, we're doing something from learning about it before and we do it because we know it's the right thing to do without clocking why we did it. And we only, I have only learned why I do stuff by debriefing it in detail afterwards and going, oh, that's why I decided to do that. And then logging it for next time so it reinforces my decision-making for the future. So the debriefing in the sort of honest, why did you do something? Let's try and learn that for the future way. And then along with that, the idea that everyone has a different black box recording of the event. So an example I have is of one of my force protection from Afghanistan who got off the back of the helicopter to triage the casualties. He was so focused on getting that triage right because he got it wrong the last time we debriefed it, which is maybe my fault for not leading the debrief well. But he was so focused that he didn't notice that the Taliban were firing past him one way and the force protection were firing past him the other way and he was in the middle of it. I honestly thought he wasn't going to get back onto the back of the helicopter. And it wasn't until we got back and debriefed, he still didn't believe us that that was the case until we got the air crew and the force protection in to reinforce that because his black box recording was off just triaging the casualties. He didn't see or hear it because his hearing went. So just reinforcing that idea, and that's a bit of an extreme view, but reinforcing the idea that when you debrief, understand that other people might not have seen and heard stuff that you saw and heard, but listening to them will bring the whole story together. And then you will really learn what happened and understand it. And again, I think operators are really, really good at doing that and being really honest about what happened and trying to learn from it. It's better than medical people sometimes. Um, and the final point, which maybe they're slightly less good at, is the it being okay to be upset about something. I think um, we all do this job and we all see stuff that probably affects us and most people deal with it by talking amongst their teams. And that's certainly talking to someone who understands what you've been through and processing it is a way of dealing with it and moving on definitely. But sometimes there's just one thing that gets you, particularly if it's treating a casualty that you didn't manage to save or treating one of your worst, treating one of your team that you didn't manage to save. And it's okay to be upset about that and it's normal. And there doesn't need to be any bravado about being obsessed about that. And the only way you'll deal with it is to be upset about it, talk about it, and accept that that's a normal response and anyone dealing with them, whether they're medical, tactical, or otherwise would feel the same. And I think that's how people process it and move on. Um, and I, I think people are really good at doing that mostly, but sometimes that kind of alpha mindset doesn't allow you to accept that it's okay to be like that. And that's 
Problema sein. Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. Um, Claire, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's it's really interesting. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes and make sure that uh, that people get it. And um, you know, where where can people find your work? What is the best way for for people to contact you or to to learn about what you're doing? Um, so they're welcome to email me if they want to email me. I can put that in a link to the show as well if that's the best way to do it or um you can google some of the papers that we've published um and um yeah uh i guess that's probably the best way to do it i um have some links to um the c-tech group in america as well so there's there's a few people that have contacts for me but um i'm not sort of post my email out if people wanted to get hold of me or find me on linkedin or twitter that's great we'll, we'll, include the, we'll include that in our show notes Claire, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on The Debrief with me. Thank you so much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you.